Hello and welcome to CQ Speaks. I'm your host, Colin Akeshider, and on this episode, we're digging into the Carolina Quarterly Archives to do our second retrospective on the journal. And joining me in this endeavor is fellow graduate student in the English PhD program at UNC Chapel Hill, Leo Collins. Mm -hmm. Leo, thanks for coming. Yep, no problem. So today we sort of agreed to look at the winter 1963 issue I uh, I sort of assumed we'd be looking at the story by Raymond Carver, one of the most famous uh, mm-hmm. American short story writers of the 20th century. But something else grabbed your attention, and I'm actually glad it did because it's actually more interesting than, than Carver overall or that story. So do you want to just tell listeners quickly what you chose? Yeah, um, I wanted to look at On Academic Madness, which is uh, uh, just a short little essay that... Uh Maurice Natanson wrote. Um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything about who Maurice was. I was not really super familiar with his work before uh, jumping into this. Yeah, uh, f- full disclosure, I don't know who he is at all and didn't read his work, but he was actually sort of a bigwig in the philosophy world. Um, one thing that I pulled up was an in memoriam that Judith Butler actually wrote for him after his passing. So the following information comes from that uh, memoriam. He taught at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill from 1957 to 1965. Before that, he was at Houston. After that, he was at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And then he moved to Yale uh, until his death. So he bounced around actually quite a bit as a professor. I wonder if that has anything to do with the essay we'll get into. Beyond that, he also apparently wrote the first American book on Jean-Paul Sartre and introduced American philosophers to the work of Edmund Husserl. So, surprised he hasn't come across my table, actually, considering my interest in phenomenology. But here we are. Now you know. <laughs> now I do know, yeah. Thanks, Judy. Thanks, Judy. All right. The title of the essay, Academic Madness, is intriguing, to say the least. And I sort of thought he was going to go in a different direction than he did. But what sort of grabbed your attention about this essay? It's out of no disrespect to the illustrious Raymond Carver that I uh, neglected him. <laughs> Um, but he's got enough attention, I think. It's it's true. Well, th- that's kind of one of the points that I wanted to make. It's a good opportunity to be able to discuss this. Like, it's very short. It's very weird. It's very colloquial. It's very informal. Um, yeah. And it's really nice. So yeah, it's just an intriguing little text that he wrote in the midst of a of a fairly long and um, respected career. I think is just fascinating. The second reason I think is more selfish, and it's just that I I've been feeling particularly mad lately. <laughs> So I assume that that's that's what you sort of wanted to talk about. Um, Is me completely? <laughs> that's right. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what should, should we get into the content? Yeah, a little bit. Maybe Let's just like what he means exactly by academic madness, because we all know that academia can drive one mad. But mm-hmm. he's sort of on the other end of it a little bit. Well, it's the big question I think of the. Um, essay or the article i don't know what i'm gonna call it i'll, I'll probably slouch into one or the other mm-hmm. um is that he, he yeah he isn't really uh he doesn't really give a lot of attention to really defining madness so i think that's one of the the open questions of the article um he's so programmatic about what he's trying to do in a sort of you know fun way like i said this is a fairly informal piece he's having a good fun with it my point is he puts forward a thesis as he says and it has nothing to do really with the definition of madness Mm -hmm. um it's very clear he just wants to uh not even really argue he says but he just kind of wants to remind us or entreat us to the uh more or less fact that madness is necessary or required for the uh 
the academic project or the, the functioning of the university or whatever. So in short, his argument is very particular and very specific, very programmatic, but it has nothing to do with actually defining <laughs> the central term of the piece. It is more about making a sort of institutional argument. And the institutional argument is that we should accept and nurture madness at three different levels of the university, which are the student, the professor, and the administrator. The administrator. Right. We have few examples of the mad student and few examples of the mad professor and no examples <laughs> of the mad administrator, which right. the latter is probably the thing that leads to a more uh, intensely psychological type of madness that I don't think he's exactly talking about, but mm -hmm. that I think as graduate students we tend to fall into. Well, on the topic of the first category, if we want to proceed linearly with this, <laughs> um, I have a bit of a gripe here. Yeah. When it comes to madness in the student, and if we are categorizing the different kind of functional human pieces of the academic institution, I don't know. What do you think, actually? Should we distinguish between the graduate and the undergraduate student? Or, or is our madness the same? You know, I was thinking about that, actually, and I was, one, I was trying to figure out which of my students, if any, would fall into his yep. idea of madness. Mm -hmm. He says of the student, the mad student, has mm -hmm. two functions within the framework of the university. And the first is to compel the average person to take a look at themselves and reconsider the world that they take for granted. And the second is that, and I didn't really understand this, that they have representational rights and that they project an academic style of being on campus mm -hmm. that represents a possibility. So yeah, I was trying to think through if there's any students that would sort of fit these criteria for, for strangers that I've come across. He does call it an aspect of inwardness or something to that effect and not necessarily... Not merely eccentric. Right, yeah, not merely eccentric. Um, something, something internally strange. Uh, he calls it true strangeness, essentially strangeness, some sort of uh, inward strangeness that uh, represents a sort of completion of individuality in the student. I, okay, here are my thoughts on it at the yeah. risk of being way jumbled and incoherent about it. Because obviously I was also kind of prompted to try and find in my own experience either one that I'm dealing with now or one that I've dealt with when I was an undergraduate that could maybe fit this sort of definition. And of course, it's hard given his his working definition of strangeness because we can't just operate on, on you know, appearances and on ex eccentricity, but something right. truly inwardly strange. So, you know, really, yeah, no one immediately, of course, I have no, I have no stories about anybody to share really off the top of my head. But I think of how would strangeness on campus really manifest itself or strangeness in the classroom? And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was and I think this is probably more so for undergraduates than graduates, but it would be like a sort of contribution mm. um, or a, a certain level of contribution. The stranger student is the one who's all there. Right. Um, who is ready to go. And I think that implies capability as a student, but it's not necessarily the same thing as capability as a student. The strange student isn't the smartest student. No. Um, the strange student is the most willing to... You know, bring something to the table. Yep, and uh, most willing to talk. Who seems to have the thinnest veneer of sort of shame mm -hmm. in the classroom than everybody else who largely just sit quietly, right? Um, and kind of protect themselves, right? Right. This is coming from someone who just sat through a whole seminar and didn't say a word. So you know, <laughs> disclaimer there. So, so that's kind of where my mind went, and I think that it, that might be a helpful way to think about it, if only to sort of illuminate 
the definition that Natanson's giving us here, those two reasons you brought up that you kind of uh, thought were a little troubling, and I thought so too, just kind of confusing, right? the, the fact that they have representational rights, mm-hmm. they represent a possibility later in the piece, um, and how, how they sort of, uh, I, I don't remember the exact language he uses, but sort of a complete individual, mm-hmm. a, a completely individualized person. If we're trying to kind of approach uh, Natanson's definitions through what I've been saying about like, you know, the sort of levels of contribution in undergraduates and the strangeness of that and the the sort of, um, I think, the way that maybe inward strangeness in a student may manifest in that way. I, I you know, I, I think that we could um, we could say that this is the, the strange student is the student who's most ready to be a student. Right. Right. The one who's so ready, the one who is more ready to the shock and shame of everybody else in the room to uh, talk a lot and to, um, this is not a PSA for you undergraduates out there to (laughs) contribute to our classes, even though we all talk about how much we want you to. This is not a PSA for that. Um, It's really not. But it does seem like, and again, this was written, when when was it? The 63, yeah. So yeah, even today, especially today, um, it seems like the strangeness in a student is even more so, yeah, identified uh, in, in these tendencies to uh, to be a student and to really talk, to really embrace that sort of um, student student aura of being in a classroom and, and having to contribute and having to sort of absorb information. That I think I think these processes we feel a bit of shame over and mm-hmm. kind of they stun us into silence more often than not. Yeah, well, I mean, what you're saying. Uh- makes me think that his definition of madness is then someone who really just doesn't have a filter and that can be good and bad but i actually would say in the classroom setting that it is sort of a hundred percent of the time good because it opens up a dialogue almost immediately yeah. even if what the student is saying is sort of so off the rails that it has no bearing on <laughs> what you're talking about but even that's good but he has this quote here where he says too often what is called maturation is a euphemism for the development of a distinctively adult dishonesty and that's sort of the notion of a filter. It made me think of Emerson's self-reliance. Mm-hmm. He has this line where he says that as soon as someone says anything brilliant, they're judged immediately with either sympathy or, or hatred. And then after that fact, the person who spoke is committed. Mm-hmm. And that notion of being committed is is very, very scary, especially within a, a university setting and probably especially for um, undergraduates, right? Mm-hmm. There, we've lost this sort of idea of of speaking for speaking's sake, of just arguing for argument's sake, and and driving out conversation, and 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 uh, having a, a back and forth, and no one needing to necessarily take a stance within that back and forth. Or maybe we haven't lost it. It's probably you know never existed. I think, and and I think sort of Emerson's point in the essay is that it is quite rare, but it is this kind of madness, the madness that is. Um, unaffected by either uh, praise or degradation. And that's sort of a hard person to find. <laughs> the person is just like, no holds barred, willing to contribute. It is a hard person to find. You know, as I'm sort of thinking about this now and sort of kind of uh, zeroing in on or maybe uh, negotiating this definition of the sort of mad student, we can see those tendencies more recognizably uh the the sort of the willingness to contribute i think largely um maybe i should slow down a little bit but i i still to this day admit to my shame that i i still can feel that secondhand embarrassment in class oh yeah yeah all the time and i think that that's kind of what i'm talking about yeah um 
is that, you know, if the, the mad student is the one who's so ready to be a student, is so ready to talk up, is so ready to bring something to the table, as you say, maybe that, that secondhand embarrassment that I think we all, I think we all do feel, yeah. um, is uh, a sort of recognizing of the mad, is, is recognizing the mad student among us, right? Yeah. And not nurturing it in our role as uh, like onlookers. Natanson would not approve of my, or our secondhand embarrassment. I think no. it's, yeah, right. It's, it's, it's damaging. Yeah. It's trying to, re- it's your body trying to reject, you know, this, the, you know, our, our perceived madness in somebody else that he says is integral to not just the institution, but the the whole academic project um entirely yeah that was the first thing that that was how i was trying to negotiate you know this this turned into a bigger thing but that was how i was trying to negotiate that sort of you're right i think to point out the difficult definition that we kind of begin with you know uh the the way that the the mad student has these representational rights and these the sort of especially you know this vision of a possibility i mean imagine the you know what a campus would or what even a, on a smaller scale just a classroom would look like if there wasn't so much shame Right at the you know the the visions of these mad students running around right if if there was uh, a bit less you know I don't want to turn it into too simple like a, a metaphor of like inhibition versus uh, bottling up or whatever but I think it maybe more like role playing yeah um or in a more kind of embraced sort of acknowledgement of the roles that we're playing and and to and to resist it less right because it's not productive right right yeah role playing is a is a great term I think. The idea that someone is automatically 100% behind something they say in the classroom. Um, oh, that, that's a big part. I think that's a big part of it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is there's, there's, there's probably the thing, the, the main thing that's that's the undercurrent of all of this is a shared um, implication that we're, uh, we're, we sort of have to identify with the things that fall out of our mouths. Right. Which yeah. Which is for those of us who shut up, it causes us to shut up. And when we see those who aren't shut up by it to, to sort of feel that secondhand embarrassment and be like, wow, this is who this person is. This is like this person is this person's laying it all out there. Yeah. Um, and it's shocking. Hmm. Yeah. I think you're I think you're exact. I think that's exactly poignant. We could probably move on. But he describes it as a right. And he says, take it away and the university will have cut itself off from the only kind of growth that can give meaning and validity to expansion. So it's interesting to think of it as a kind of right, and I think, yeah, maybe we've gotten to a place where we're not really recognizing it as a right. But I think we should move on. it. Um, and instead of moving to the professor and the administrator... Even he doesn't care much. No, <laughs> he doesn't. He just said, you know, he just his point is that the professor is sort of the kind of person who didn't have this right to madness stricken down initially, and they developed into a professor. And then the mad administrator doesn't exist. <laughs> yep. That's right. Also, so much to say about that, actually. I'll just say it briefly. His idea of the mad administrator is just a witty person who's also an administrator. <laughs> so, like, I didn't understand it. It's just, like, someone who's, like, telling you a joke while handing you the same forms he was going to hand you regardless, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand how the administ- uh, how a mad administrator is going to like change the university from the inside out. It's like no, there's still bureaucracy, there's still red tape. Like that that one's a little bit more tough <laughs> to me. <laughs> a- and it's the center of like the other side of academic academic madness, which is like I just want to read books yep. and write uh, articles and write my dissertation. Why am I r- signing this piece of paper for the ninetieth time since I've been here <laughs> four months? That part is so maddening. Anyway. <laughs> This is Natanson getting his digs in. It's like there aren't enough mad administrators. 
without but he's coy about it because he's like he's a you know better writer really than that he is coy and he's also quite gentle on the page it actually made me wonder what he was like in person um he he bounced around a lot and the judith butler thing does make him seem a little bit prickly maybe so, yeah so i didn't know i was wondering if if you thought that he at this stage he's like 39 when he writes this if he's sort of doing a little wish fulfillment or recognizes himself as mad. But if he recognizes himself as mad, then according to his definition, he's not mad. It's one of those catch-22. I, I, I think you are more willing to psychologize our writers than I am. <laughs> Just by way of observation. I mean, I think he psychologizes himself a little bit by talking about how he's a night person and that he's writing this out of the night mind and that it'll be an attempt at indirect communication, which is already just admitting that you're not going to even try to get across what you want to get across. <laughs> yes. I'm going to speak up for him here. Yeah. Um, no, do it, please. I'm with it. Again, yeah, I think it comes down to whether or not you're willing to tolerate this sort of thing mm -hmm. um, because he'll even say that he's... I mean, the quote is after he puts forward his thesis, right? He says that to all of you, you know, something to the effect of to all of you, this is mostly indefensible. Right. So I'm not going to apologize for it and let's just get on with it. Right. You know? And um, that is better than him waking up at eight in the morning and writing something like, quote, wither existentialism, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which is great. Sorry, go on. Mm -hmm. Well, I only mean to say that he definitely, it, it, it's not so to, to, to fault him or the piece for, you know, um, playfulness or whatever, I think maybe a little bit off base, if only just because it, I think it's more of a question of how much we're just willing to tolerate this sort of project. It's not so argumentative. It's not as it's more ironic, really, than it is argumentative. Do you think you're saying it's ironic because it's leaning into madness a little bit? Or what do you mean by ironic? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm wondering, is he trying to sort of paint himself as the mad professor yeah. By like writing this really playful sort of odd um, essay, uh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we would have to. I think we would want to figure out, like, you know, where was he really at, in his career at this point? Yeah. Um, I, I'm gonna incline to say no. Um, I think that he knows uh, not to diminish the piece in any way, but I think he knows to a certain degree how cute this is. You right. Know? I, I think he's. I think it's a sort of uh, uh, as a writing project. To seem, he seems pretty comfortable with it, right? But at the level of irony, do you think that the the form of the piece, the strange style that you called it, is supposed to be kind of its own evidence for the necessity of madness in academia? You know, I think that's probably unavoidable. I think that's a good observation. Um, I know you, and I know you're trying to fault him <laughs> for it. <laughs> no, I don't think I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I am a little bit. I just think his his rhetorical choices are so odd to me, and I don't. We don't need to get off on this tangent, but but we can. So we will. Okay. Um, you're the captain of this ship. This for, the stories that he drops in and the anecdotes that he drops in are so odd. The first one, I would have been quite willing to try a compromise topic, but trying to please everybody means, in the end, speaking to nobody. I'm sure you know the story of the author who had an article on bear hunting accepted by the Reader's Digest. And he tells this anecdote of how it was initially titled How to Hunt Bears. Then the editor said he needed to change it. He changed it to How I Shot a Bear. He said he needed to change it again, How I Shot a Red Bear. And then the editor said he was almost there, almost there. And in the end, the final title is How I Shot a Bear and Found God. I can't manage quite that in what follows, but I do promise to be brief. <laughs> With that said, I turn directly to Academic Madness. 
What does that anecdote have to do with what precedes it? Uh, I okay. <laughs> I know you didn't want to get into the nitty gritty here. You are you are sea lioning <laughs> right now. You are not giving up as much as you want to give up right now. You are moving to strike. <laughs> I'm not. I enjoyed it over. I enjoyed the whole piece. I. It seems that I think it's sufficient. Rhetorically, I. This is my perspective on it. Rhetorically, I don't care. <laughs> right. You know what I mean. For me, it's sufficient that it's cute, and I already know. I already have a sense by this point his sort of rhetorical style, and this. You know, th- this kind of conversation can bleed over into more general comments about. The Carolina Quarterly itself and the fact of this episode as a retrospective, right? right. Um, we're not dealing right now with a 40-page long, you know, treatise on madness by Sienney, uh, right? That was printed in, in Critical Review or whatever the hell, right. right? This is a, you know, a funny little, not to diminish it, of course, I love it, um, but a funny little piece by someone who would go on to die a very respected American phenomenologist. Yeah. Right. I think that it's funny. And I think that that's sufficient for that particular rhetorical move. (laughs) Um, It seems like it is not sufficient for you, but maybe I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's where I stand on it. Right. Is that we're um, the generic expectations of that sort of piece I'm not going to pick too much on CNA. Um, this is an academic platform that we're speaking on right now. Mm-hmm. But we're not dealing, like I said, with something like that. We're dealing with something very different. We're dealing with something out of the Carolina Quarterly. And, you know, I think that there are different generic expectations to that, sir. <laughs> I tricked you. Oh, you did? Yeah. Use a little bit of my uh, devil's advocate. Oh, okay. Uh, student professor madness to I'll, draw a little madness it. out of you. I'll buy it. That was very well said. Um, so we've peeked behind the curtain a little bit, and we clearly know each other, um, <laughs> as we've referenced. Yeah, I mentioned that I assume that you resonated with the piece a little bit because of the the night mind line and this notion of maybe insomnia or academic madness and the need to... Yeah, be a little bit on an edge, I'd say, to to sort of get through what we're what we're going through, mm-hmm. which is a very long English PhD program with a lot of institutional red tape with and not enough mad administrators. Not enough mad administrators. Yeah, we'll leave it there. So <laughs> just and you spoke about your students a little bit, but just personally, like how how did you resonate with this? Well, the night mind thing is enormously romantic. I mean, how do yeah. we not indulge ourselves with that? sort of fantasy of you know needing to stay up all night or whatever yeah Um, but no what resonated with me was more generally the the sort of um yeah teetering along on an it on the on the edge right and (laughs) frankly my my faith in it actually is 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 being shaken more recently you know not to say that i'm completely and fully sold on this uh you know professionalization craze a lot of attention i think is being paid to that to a certain degree, we do need to stave it off a little bit in yeah. contention, perhaps, with Natanson. And, you know, in my experience, my own form of academic madness perhaps conflicts with productivity. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that that's something that Natanson doesn't talk about. Right. 
is the question of how this is leveraged against productivity. And we do need to be productive. Mm-hmm. I know immediately as I say that, there are people who I know personally in the program that would object to the use of that term. But, you know, to what extent really can we leverage productivity with with our madness? Uh, and, you know, this does come back to an earlier part of our discussion on kind of uh, student madness. We never got to graduate student madness. And I right. think in, to a certain degree, actually, uh, it's almost inverted. The most successful graduate students right now are the ones who are the most productive. Right. I mean, that's intuitive enough. But, you know, running off of what I've just said, that are also simultaneously the least mad. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, the ones who can lower their head and proceed um the ones who can get their good night's sleep yeah and wake up and uh read the, the manuals and, and and get the work done so in a sense it's almost inverted mm-hmm. uh, f- uh it, it, that's what it feels like in, in current graduate student life and may, you know maybe that is to natanson's point is that we're in a position right now where we need to suppress or stave off the more maddened aspects of our academic lives in order to be successful in these sorts of programs mm-hmm. and maybe Natanson would take issue with that um, but that's how I feel about it I think yeah when when forced to interrogate my own academic madness I find it in conflict with my productivity yeah that's very well said yeah okay I think Are we'll you? wrap it up there oh <laughs> my god <laughs> I mean <laughs> you want to hear my side of things a little bit a little bit <laughs> <laughs> not used to being on the other end of these uh this thing no what do you mean no i'm just joking i would say that i that i completely agree with everything that you said i mean he doesn't mention like the word tenure anywhere <laughs> which you know you we all know you have to play the game and like the kind of professors who are mad in the way that he wants uh professors to be mad you know i don't think are invited to the dinner table all that often with that said i think my madness um, sort of goes in a direction completely opposite from productivity. And I s- sort of, you know, on, on one hand, I need the university to give me deadlines and, and give me the structure to get oh, yeah, to get too. stuff done. But at the same time, that structure is in itself maddening. So then I sort of use these, like, other forces. Don't use them, but hope these other forces, for instance, marriage, <laughs> will sort of keep me starting in, a family. in line. Yeah, starting a family and will sort of, like, stem the madness a little bit and keep me productive and sort of keep my eye on the prize a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of look at the current state of things within the academic world and you're just, you're, well, I don't necessarily want to go there, but it's it's a little bit sure. um, defeating. Mm-hmm. And I don't really mean the job marker or anything. I kind of mean from the point where he begins the essay, which is like, I have nothing to say about the current hot button issues mm-hmm. or I don't want to talk about it. I'm bored by it. Mm-hmm. I want to project my madness into my academia a little bit and do something wacky and exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm at. And I just don't know exactly to what extent the university or the universities, the potential hirers, will jive with that. And that's scary, but you also just have to, yeah, find a little semblance of individualism and just push forward. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm at. <laughs> on the edge. Yeah, on the edge. <laughs> yeah. Forever teetering. Yes, exactly. All right. We'll see how much of that stays in. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for bringing a very, very interesting piece, uh, one that I never expected to, to go over, and a very interesting topic uh, to CQ Speaks. Thank you very much for having me. All right. 
If you'd like to learn more about the Carolina Quarterly, visit us at thecarolinaquarterly.com and follow us at facebook.com slash carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening and to be on the lookout for our upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.